you see these really consistent patterns in who these individuals are and what their pathway to violence looks like. If we trained everybody and locked up the guns, how much of an impact could we have? It could really be a game changer. Psychologist Dr. Jillian Peterson and sociologist Dr. James Densley of the Violence Project are joining me today on Fill in the Blanks. This is a very important conversation. They have developed an integrated, interdisciplinary understanding of violence and a holistic approach to addressing it. That's what has me so interested and has caused me to develop such a deep respect for these two. I've been following them a long time. I've been reading their research for a long time. We're going to talk about that today. This is something that I think is going to empower you a lot, learning what they have put together and learned about school shooters, mass shooters. They are best known for their work on gun violence prevention. Now, the Violence Project also pioneered a new mental illness crisis intervention and de-escalation training for law enforcement, referred to as the R model, that has changed the way officers think about community policing. The questions are, can we reduce violence in society by using data? What can parents do to make their schools safer? Can we identify a potential shooter? And we're going to talk about all of that and more. So welcome to Jillian and James. Guys, thank you so much for taking the time to do this. I know how busy you are. Thank you so much for having us. We're thrilled to be here. Yeah, it's a pleasure to be on. Well, when you were here for the shows that we did before, it was just terrific. And everybody on the staff here was spellbound. The show that we shot airs very soon. It's this week, actually, because we're back into school now, and we know a lot of things about the schedule of school and when they're at risk for some of the violence that occurs. I'm starting with a premise here that I want you guys to talk about, and I'm going to do a little bit of talking and get the two of you to do a lot of talking today because you're the experts on this. So I'm going to pose some questions and get you to respond to them in the beginning. I'm starting out with a thesis, and that is that we know more about who school shooters are than what we're maximizing. We know more about who they are than we're using. Is that a fair statement? I do think that's a very fair statement. We, uh, in looking at school shooters and sort of attempted school shooters, you see these really consistent patterns in who these individuals are and what their pathway to violence looks like. And we're not building systems to interrupt that pathway yet. That to me is a very hopeful reality, but it's also frustrating in that we're not doing it, but I'm making plans for that to change. That's why I'm so anxious to talk about it. The truth is we don't have a psychological test. We don't have a psychometric. We don't have a battery of tests that we can give to all of the school kids that will identify who the school shooter is going to be. Fair statement? Yeah, that's correct. Yeah, there's not a profile in that typical sense of the word. We think of it more as a pathway toward violence. And it's a pathway that you see over and over and over again. And that comes back to that frustration you talked about, which is when you're able to look back with retrospect and say, why weren't these warning signs spotted? Why weren't they acted upon? So we're really hopeful now that we can turn sort of the uh, uh, this, this retrospective look into actually a more hopeful, forward-looking uh, intervention plan to prevent violence going forward. Let's think about this for a minute, because we're going to get into what these things are and talk about them in some detail. But some of the first things we know are that we're talking mostly about males, correct? 
Yes. So in our database of mass shooters, it's 98% male. I think there's four women in there, but two of them committed the shooting with a man. So vast, vast majority male. Okay. Let's talk about age. So if we're talking about school shooters, they're young, um, 15, 16 on average, up to 18. Over 90% of them are actually current or former students of the school. Okay. And that's what I want to do first is talk about school shooters, and then we'll broaden this out a little bit. But right now we're talking about 98% are males, really 99 plus, I suppose. Like you say, there's two girls in here, but they were with a male, 15 to 18. You say 98% of these are either current or former students of the school where the shooting takes place, correct? About 90% of them, yes. 90%? Yeah. Okay. And if we're just talking school shooters, we can actually say 100% male. Okay, 100% male then. Let's talk about what that means. Let's pick a hypothetical school that's 50% male, 50% female. We can immediately divide our target population of who we're having to focus on in half, correct? Yep. Let's say we've got a thousand students in the school. We can immediately divide it in half. So we're now talking about 500. And if we know that they're of a certain age, we can then bracket it down even further, correct? Yeah, it's mostly high school students. So right. you, you are focused then at the the older end of the of that student body. And yeah, it's 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 boys that we're focused on. So we're bracketing it down even more. Now we also know some other things about them, and let's talk about what those are, because you guys, you're not the only ones that have researched this. You're just the most thorough, consistent, and meticulous about it, but your research has been validated by others, and it's very consistent. So we know other things about them personality-wise and home-wise. So describe that for our listeners and viewers, if you would, please. Yeah, we see a common pathway with this trajectory toward violence, and it often is rooted in early childhood trauma. So these are young people who've experienced at times quite horrific abuse and neglect early in life, Um, and it's unresolved. Because there's many people in the world that have experienced uh, trauma, but it doesn't mean to say that they're going to go on to perpetrate a school shooting. But in this particular case, it's trauma that's unresolved and it lays a foundation for what we call a crisis point in the lives of these students. So they reach an identifiable crisis and it's noticeable. It's a change in their behavior from the norm. And you see in the sort of transcripts of the investigations that follow school shootings, people will talk about that they knew that something was wrong. They had a gut feeling. They could notice a change in behavior. It was increased aggression or agitation, or they were becoming more withdrawn. Um, It was something that alerted people that there was something not quite right, but they didn't really put together two and two and realize that this was Uh, potentially the signs that violence was to follow. So it's early childhood trauma and it's a crisis point are are two of the really uh, foundational pieces of this puzzle. Also, they tend to be suicidal. So that school shootings are often designed to be a final act, that they're often kind of isolated. Um, They spend a lot of time studying previous shooters They spend a lot of times online in chat rooms getting radicalized and getting their violence validated, and they leak their plans. They tell other people, usually students, that they're thinking about doing this. Right. 80-something percent of them tell at least one person. Two-thirds of them tell more than one person. You mentioned something earlier. You said they reached this crisis point. And they have identifiable, observable mental health symptoms, either psychological, behavioral, something that's noticeable. It's not like this comes out of the blue. 
the kids that know them, they don't call it this, but they have a baseline for this individual. There's a baseline where they can say something's varied. This kid is different now than he was a month ago or before the Christmas break or before he left for summer break. This kid's come back in September or January, February, which is usually when this happens, right? When they come back from break, we're in that time now in September when these things occur the most. So there's something observable. We've got something that is a variation from baseline. So if they're looking for it, then they can say, okay, something's amiss here. Something's gone wrong. And if this is a red flag, if this is something that somebody knows what to do with when they see that, that causes some investigation into the other areas, then we know that some investigation can start. And again, I'm talking about narrowing the field. These aren't the kids that are the soloist in the choir. They're not the kids that are on the debate team, the football team, the class president, the popular kids. These are already marginalized kids that set themselves apart from the rest of the group. Fair? Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah, I think that's true. Okay. I've talked to so many educators and I've talked to some legislators recently and they say there are so many out there. How do we start to narrow this down? And there are ways to narrow it down. You cut it in half because it's boys, not girls. You can get to high school and you're talking about the certain age. Then you're talking about those that have a noticeable departure from baseline. And if that sets into play where you start looking to see, do they have early childhood trauma? Have they hit a crisis point? And you start investigating and see they are studying shooters. They have become radicalized. Then you find out that on their Instagram, social media, or however, they started to talk about doing something, they're writing a manifesto or whatever. Now these people start identifying themselves where they stick out like a sore thumb if you know what you're looking for. Exactly. And I think two things happen. One is that we think of people who do this as these outside monsters, right? It's like this boogeyman, psychopath person that comes in and does that. We don't think of school shooters as insiders, right? There's students who go to that school. They are kids in the classroom. And so even when people are giving off all these warning signs, they're talking about their plans, they're talking about violence, people don't take the warning signs seriously because they couldn't imagine that the kids sitting next to them in class could actually do this. So that's kind of a mind shift to think somebody I know could actually be the one that does this. And then second, I think people are afraid to report. They don't want to be a snitch. They don't want to get the kid put in prison or expelled from school. So we have to build systems where students can trust that they can go to adults and they'll get an outcome that they're looking for. Well, you use the term mind shift, and it seems like there has to be two mind shifts. I'm curious how y'all feel about this. One is, like you say, we used to think about predators as the guy that showed up outside the fence at the schoolyard in the raincoat and saying, hey, kid, would you like some candy? Now we realize that 95% of them are known to their victims. And now we know they're on the internet and they're a completely different breed of cat. So we've got to get them to realize this may have been the kid that was in the lunchroom or sitting next to me in the back of the class yesterday and he didn't have horns. He didn't look all dark. Well, he probably looked dark, but didn't have horns. So we've got to get that mind shift. But then the other mind shift is that telling is not tattling. Right. They've got this idea that snitches get stitches, and we've got to get them to realize that they're helping. If they can get this information to the right person at the right time, they may be saving this kid's life because this is, A, a suicide mission, B, he's in pain, and C, 
terribly lonely, marginalized, and desperate for some kind of relief. This is a helping thing, not something punitive. And that's actually the first step in the true intervention, which is we've got to train everybody in the school building. And I mean everybody, you know, the person on the front desk, the teachers, the principal, and the students, and the parents, so that if you see something, you say something. And everybody's on that same page of knowing that you're doing this because you're trying to help somebody. And not only are you trying to help somebody because you're trying to prevent a school shooting, but in doing so, you might also be preventing a suicide, or you might be preventing a student who's being bullied and is feeling lonely and isolated and everything that you just described. So there's this really huge diffusion of benefits for doing this. And it really comes down to, we've got to make sure everybody is, is singing from the same hymn sheet on this. And we're all on the same page and we're all on in it together. So we can train everybody in this. We, we talk about crisis intervention as like CPR. It can save a life. And it's something that everybody can be educated in and can practice. And I think that's the mind shift right there uh, to, to use. The first page of a book never tells the full story. And those news alerts and headlines, like the ones we get on our phones, don't even scratch the surface of what the story is really all about. Stories are like people, multi-layered and complex. It takes some digging to find the truth, but when we find it, it can change our world. We like to dig. The news on Merritt Street, essential television. To me, that makes so much sense. We need to train cafeteria workers, janitors, coaches, teachers, teachers' aides, administrators, local police officers, parents, everybody. And then there's got to be somewhere for them to go, particularly the students, because, like I said, if we've got three or 400 students in a high school that's three or four hundred sets of eyes. A school counselor's not going to see this the way the kids are going to see it. They can see it sitting back there in geometry. They can see it in gym. They can see it in the lunchroom. But they've got to have somewhere that they can anonymously report this so they don't feel like they're putting themselves in jeopardy. Because if they're wrong, and most of the time they probably will be, but they've only got to be right occasionally to save lives. But right or wrong, they've got to know that they can do this anonymously, and then it's going to be acted on. And I can tell you, in my experience with these kids that get really dark, whether it's a coach or a teacher or somebody that can just step up one time and put their arm around their shoulder and say, Hey man, take a walk with me. Let's let's go talk. I I'd like to know what's going on and I've looked at your records and I see you're falling behind. We can work this out. It's okay. I understand you broke up with this girlfriend or whatever, but I'd like you to help me in the office after school or something for a while. Anything that makes them feel like there's a reason to get up tomorrow and then they can contact the parents and find out if all these other things, the early childhood trauma that's unresolved, what was the crisis point? What do you find out about the family dynamic once you find out what's going on in the home? You know, we see a few different things. Oftentimes you find that the family itself is really chaotic and in crisis. There might be domestic violence in the home or financial struggles and the boy is not getting kind of the attention and resources that he needs at home. Once in a while, you'll see a parent who maybe does see some of the warning signs and almost kind of amplifies the risk. So does things like is then taking them to shooting ranges and buying them guns and not monitoring social media where it's, you know, almost sort of next level in terms of pushing them further down that pathway. So we see we see both of those things. Where are most of the shooters getting their guns? 
they take them from their parents or their grandparents or their family members. They're not old enough to buy them, so they're taking unsecured um, firearms from homes. Let's say we did everything that we're talking about here. Let's say that we were able to get the protocol folded into teacher, staff, student training. They were willing to make time in teacher training, student training. There was a protocol put together to give them the idea that there was a number to call, that there was somebody on the other end that knew what to do, that there was an intervention strategy, that there was a step two, three, and four if this was reported. And then there was a massive campaign to lock up the guns, just like the Just Say No campaign from Nancy Reagan, massive campaign to lock up the guns. So the kid couldn't get the guns as readily from home or grandma's house or whatever. How much of an impact could we have here? If we trained everybody and locked up the guns, how much of an impact could we have? I think it it could really be a game changer. And again, it's not just because you're trying to prevent a school shooting, but doing that could also prevent an accidental shooting in the home where a child finds a gun um, and, and accidentally uses it against a family member. It could prevent suicide in the home. It could prevent domestic violence in the home. So again, you get this ripple effect that sometimes that messaging can have this broader impact than you really can ever appreciate. But in the case of these school shootings, it's unequivocal that these shooters are getting firearms from the home. And the more we can do to send the message that safe storage saves lives could truly be a game changer. And so um, I think a public health campaign around that is also something that is not really that controversial. Um, whenever you talk about firearm policy, it, it often gets stuck because it's such a divisive issue. This is something I think everybody can agree on. Everybody can say, we want to be responsible gun owners. And the way we do that is if we've got children, if we've got teenagers in the home, we store our firearms safely. And, and it's something to be proud of if we do that. I think people get bogged down in and lose focus with this Second Amendment debate. What are there, 350, 60, 70 million guns in America? And how many assault rifles are on the streets of America? Do you know? Well, the interesting thing about assault rifles is you you don't see them very often in everyday gun violence, but they are massively overrepresented in mass shootings. So in our database, about a quarter of mass shooters have used an AR-15 style assault weapon. And so in this particular instance, that's where the debate around the assault rifles comes into play. Um, For everyday gun violence, and also with mass shootings though, it's handguns uh, are, are more of an issue. But I think, as we mentioned before, with school shootings, it's they're getting those handguns from family members. Um, The assault rifles are often being purchased on an 18th birthday as a gift. Um, And that might also be a warning sign if somebody wants an AR-15 right on their 18th birthday when they've got all these other warning signs that that's not the time to be going out and purchasing a firearm. Good God, no. I'm 18, (laughs) I'd like a box of hand grenades. (laughs) No, I'm thinking of getting you some socks or something. That's the thing. We've got thousands of those things on the street. We've got millions of guns. And people want to talk about the Second Amendment. They can change the Second Amendment. That might have an impact in 200 years. But we've got all of these guns on the street. We can make a difference right now if we'll do what we're talking about here, a protocol of training and a massive campaign for safe storage. The NRA, they very much advocate for locking up the guns. This is not a threat to 
gun owners or those that support the Second Amendment, we can sidestep that whole thing and say, you guys go over there and debate that. In the meantime, we want to stop these shootings, which we can do by the pathway you guys have identified. And just so people know, please talk about how you have identified this pathway, the matrix that you've set up with the different variables and created this common pathway, because I know you've gone back 50 years, correct? We have. Yeah, we started with 1966 and we went up. We're still collecting data now. So there's about 185 perpetrators in our database and the database is available for free. People can download it at theviolenceproject.org and look at it and see what's inside of it. But each perpetrator is coded on about 200 different pieces of life history information, anything from their early childhood to their mental health system. Um, symptoms to how they got their gun. And we did a deep dive looking for patterns in the data, kind of statistically, what do we see, what emerges? And then in addition to that, we conducted interviews. So we interviewed five perpetrators of mass shootings who were incarcerated. We interviewed mothers, siblings, um, ex-girlfriends, old preschool teachers and social workers, anybody we could find who knew these perpetrators and what that pathway to violence looked like. And we put that all together in a book we released last fall called The Violence Project. Right. Share with people some of the interesting things that you learned when you talked to the mothers of these perpetrators. How much insight did they have and what were they able to share with you about the makeup of these shooters? You know, talking to the mothers, I found it particularly heartbreaking. Um, I'm a mom of three young kids myself. And typically, the mothers who would reach out to us had never told their story before. Many of them were in hiding. Many of them carried this deep sort of shame and guilt for having missed the warning signs. You know, most of them lost their child when they committed this shooting. So there's this like inability to actually feel that grief, feeling shame around that grief. But also they reached out to us because they wanted to do something to help. They were hoping that somehow whatever they could tell us about their son's pathway to violence could, you know, prevent the next one from happening. So in some cases, we spent entire weekends in the living rooms with some of these moms eating three meals a day, looking through old family photos, trying to really get a sense of how this happened. In those interviews, how forthcoming, I know the answer to this because I've I've read it, but I want the people to understand, how forthcoming were they about these early childhood traumas? Well, in the interviews we did with the perpetrators of the mass shootings themselves, um, we corresponded often by a letter and this was because they were in prison and there were restrictions around doing research in prisons, but also we were in the midst of a global pandemic. And we, in some cases, wrote 30 letters back and forth, asking them about intimate details of their childhood. And what they wrote back was really blew us away, to be honest, because they, in some cases, and we, we do use those direct quotes in the book, they outlined in, in really horrific detail, um, the extent of abuse that they had endured and so on. Now, when we interviewed parents, I think in some ways, parents um, were not necessarily as forthcoming to talk about some of those darker aspects of childhood, but there was still an underlying recognition that something wasn't right in uh, the lives of their children and that there were missed opportunities, and I think an element of regret about things they could have and maybe should have, or if they could go back, would have changed, that we started to be exposed to. And we really tried to probe as much as we could into whether other things that could have uh, resulted in this outcome being different. And we outline in the book some examples where there were these missed opportunities. Sometimes they involved family members that if something had just slightly dif- been done differently, perhaps that young person would have been taken off of that pathway to violence. I know in 
what you disclose in the book, it's interesting that these shooters were surprisingly insightful after the fact, which caused me to believe that they would be really responsive to efforts to intervene, particularly one-on-one, because these weren't evil sorts of people. And because these are, in a sense, violent suicides, the fact that there is an armed officer on the campus, we don't want to hit this too hard because it's kind of making a statement about whether you want an armed officer on campus or not. And I know this isn't a policy discussion, but there is a certain magnetism to them doing what they're doing because they want to die. It is suicide by cop, right? And the fact that there's an armed officer there is one of the elements that attracts them back to that location. Exactly. One of the sort of main perpetrators we profile in the book told us that. He said his plan was to go to the school to do the school shooting and to be shot by the school resource officer. That that was part of the plan. And again, they're insiders. So they know that officer is there. They know where he stands. They know when he takes his lunch breaks. Right? They, they know everything about security and how to get in and out of that school. So many of the actual deaths that occur occur in the first minute to 90 seconds that they're there, it's kind of like that armed resource officer needs to be standing in the classroom, which what are the chances of that happening? Practically zero. But even if they do respond, maybe they're in the main hallway, by the time they run towards the classroom, even if there's no hesitation, they're going to be there reacting to the killings rather than stopping the killings in the best of circumstances. I don't know any way around that, but that's just the reality of the statistics. A lot of it is over by the time that officer gets there. We outline a a case in the book, which was really fascinating to us. We interviewed a school principal um, at a high school that had had a shooting, and he said it was around 7.30 in the morning. And at that time, they hadn't even taken attendance at the school. So schools were not, uh, kids were not where they usually should be. He, he actually outlined that the marching band was out on the field outside. That was a school that had ran active shooter drills, had all the protocols in place. They even had a school resource officer. They just happened to be absent that day. They were aware at training that day. The shooting uh, occurred where the individual brought a shotgun into school assembled it in the bathroom, and then fired it. Once the uh, sound of that ricocheted through the building, it sent the school rightly into panic. The principal, on the other hand, ran toward the gunshot. And it's because the principal knew that student, they were able to intervene. And when we asked the principal, what is your recommendation for school security? He answered with one uh, word which was relationships. And he said the only reason he was able to stop that shooting that day of extending out any further than that bathroom was because he knew that student and because he was able to talk him down and intervene and buy that time until law enforcement could come and deal with the situation. And that was striking for us, which is A, how quickly this all unfolded and B, that it was not a heavy-handed response necessarily that prevented the shooting. It was an existing relationship between the school principal and the student that enabled him to sort of say, you're not going to do this today. I know who you really are, and you're not going to do this today. And that helped prevent what could have been an awful tragedy uh, at that particular school. Yeah. Given the opportunity, I just believe that's going to be what it winds up being most of the time, particularly if we can get to them before the first domino falls. How many actual school shootings were there in the last academic year? So if you define a school shooting as any time a firearm is discharged in a school, then you're talking over 200 times. But if you're looking at 
the high-profile mass shootings like Uvalde, Texas, or like Parkland, Florida, or Columbine, that most people are thinking about and talking about when we are having these conversations, those are incredibly rare events. So going back through our entire database, all the way to 1966, there are only 13 of those types of cases. And a majority of those have occurred in the last sort of 20 years post-Columbine. But the good news with all this is that those types of just horrific gut-wrenching tragedies are still rare events and that schools are still relatively safe spaces for our young people. But unfortunately, too many firearms wind up in schools and then there are accidental shootings and discharges and fights that escalate and people pull a gun. And that's another concern that many parents and young people have right now, which goes back to, I think, what we talked about before is in addition to if you see something, say something and let's have those protocols in place. We also need to have that public health campaign around safe storage of firearms because it's those stolen guns that wind up in our schools. It's those uh, weapons that uh, shouldn't be in the hands of young people that are causing the problems here. How much did Uvalde fit the pattern of what we've been talking about? Yeah, based on what we know about Uvalde so far, it fits it exactly, really. Um, A young person with a history of pretty significant childhood trauma, I think that's still starting to emerge, um, who was spending a lot of time online posting things that were concerning and violent, um, dropped out of school, behaviors changing, um, people around him were noticing it, you know, purchased an AR-15 on his 18th birthday, studied other school shooters and previous school shooters. He really kind of perfectly fit the profile. The only thing that was odd was the fact that he targeted an elementary school. Right. But then when we found out that's likely because that's where a lot of his trauma occurred as a child was in that exact classroom in fourth grade. So perpetrators tend to pick a target that represents their grievance with the world somehow. And for some reason, he chose that elementary school. He attended that school? Yes, that classroom. That was his classroom. And do we know what happened to him in that classroom? There's different reports, but there's some reports that he was heavily bullied in that classroom in fourth grade. By the other students, not the teacher, but the other students? Yes. Mm -hmm. Yeah. There's been so much said about the delayed or lack of response there by law enforcement, was there insufficient training there or have you been able to determine? The um, report that came out of Uvalde, um, I think made very clear that it was a real failure of leadership, that there was a lack of understanding about who was in charge and who could make the types of decisions that needed to be made that day. Um, And it is heartbreaking to look back on what could have been done that could have saved lives. Because if we know, and we have known for a very long time, that law enforcement's job is to get there as quick as possible. And as you mentioned, Dr. Phil, earlier, um, some of these shootings are over in seconds and in and in you know a few minutes and in this case it was drawn out you know over an hour and that i think contributed to the very high death toll in that particular case and so i think there will be a lot of uh looking back at that particular case now and scrutinizing how law enforcement responded so we can learn from it And so that never happens again. Right. If we expand beyond school shootings and just look at mass shootings in general, how does the profile change from the school shooter to the mass shooter? The pathway is actually quite similar in terms of sort of early childhood trauma, the build to the crisis point. Um, Online radicalization, leaking plans, suicidality. 
What's different, um, I would say, with workplace shooters is they tend to be older. They're more like in their 40s. Oftentimes, their crisis point for workplace shooters is being recently fired from their job. And so they blame that workplace. For other perpetrators who target, you know, places of worship or grocery stores, what happens is that there's this kind of self-loathing, self-hate. There's these young men or middle-aged men who aren't at the place in life that they planned, who don't have what they feel like they deserve in life. And then there's this shift where it stops being kind of what's wrong with me and it starts being whose fault is this and who can I blame? And so people find targets to blame, whether that's a religious group or a racial group or women or their workplace. And it becomes about taking that anger out. And it's about making sure we all witness that anger. This is a public mass shooting meant to be watched and witnessed, meant to be a way to air their grievances to the world. But they're okay aggressing against surrogates as opposed to who they actually believe has transgressed against them, true? Right. Yes. I think that's a good way of putting it. They'll take somebody to stand in that can represent the establishment or whoever it is, is the evildoer. There was nobody in that grocery store in New York that this individual had a grievance against. These were just them. Yeah, and it's it's a generalized anger. And and as we've we like to say with this, like the hate comes late on that pathway, which is that it's originally the uh the hatred of self that comes first. And it's the anger and frustration that comes with not achieving one's lot in life. And then it's looking for somebody to blame, but it's a very generalized picture of who that person is. So it's not necessarily a specific person. It's just that it's these are representative of my grievance. And so it, it might just be women writ large, or it might be African-American patrons at the grocery store, as was the case in Buffalo, because there's a sense that uh, that race is the problem here. And that's where I'm going to target. So right. so I think that you've you've articulated that really well, which is it's uh it's a generalized hatred. It's not, it's not specific. Well, finally, I'm going to ask you guys if you would speculate here a bit as much as you're comfortable doing. I've spent time recently with Dr. Redfield, who was the head of the CDC at the peak of the pandemic and transition between the Trump administration and the Biden administration, and Dr. Dimitri Christakis who is a pediatric epidemiologist who has been really studying the effects of the quarantine, the shutdown of the schools on young people. Both of them are talking about the profound effects that the quarantine and the shutting down of the schools is having on our school population now, and that the cost is practically immeasurable, but that it's going to cost, the model suggests, 5.3 million years of life lost for these kids in school now because their academic attainment is going to be less, which means their employment success is going to cost them an estimated $17 trillion for this generation across time. And so it's a big predictor of longevity. Depression is higher than it's ever been measured since we've been measuring it. Anxiety is higher. Suicidal ideation attempts and suicide is higher, particularly for young women, but also for men. So mental health adjustment is really bad right now with depression and anxiety leading the problems and tremendous academic frustration because there are these gaps now. So they're facing all of this expectation for work they can't do because anywhere from five to 12 months of loss is going to push them further and further behind. Is this kind of problem and frustration likely to create 
bigger problems going forward in terms of playing out in the schools with violence of this type or other types? Yeah, I think we are at high risk right now. And, you know, we've seen it play out over the last year with Oxford and with Uvalde and even the Buffalo shooting and the Highland Park shooting. Both of those were 18-year-olds who had just been through the pandemic being a, you know, high school student during the pandemic. We're seeing, I think, risk factors, things like you've been mentioning, suicidality and hopelessness and depression spending increasing times online, those are all elevated because of the pandemic. And then you add into that record gun sales and just access within the home that I do think we have to take this very seriously. We can't only talk about this after a school shooting occurs. We have to keep talking about it in building these prevention systems. I think so long we've been focused on reacting. It's about minimizing casualties and training ourselves to minimize casualties. We need to prevent this from actually occurring. And that's going to take some real training and resources and commitment from all of us in schools, as parents, as community members. But it's really time to start working on it. Well, I am really concerned because I know during that time, Department of Child and Family Service referrals were down as much as 40 to 60% because all of these mandated reporters, teachers, coaches, administrators, cafeteria workers didn't have their eyes on these children. So they're just left to their own devices. We know that abuse didn't go down, but their referrals did. So it was happening and these kids were suffering that. Certainly in these primary grades, you talk about these early childhood problems. So we now know that this was happening over these 18 months of shutdown. And for a lot of these kids, this is where they got their food. This is where they got their protection. This is where they had a sense of protection in community. And that was just taken away. You add to that their frustration with academics. And we've seen 1.3 million kids drop out of the public school system Hell, in New York, enrollments dropped 9% just in New York City. So we've got a lot of kids really suffering right now. And then when I think about all y'all's research and everything it tells us that puts these kids on that path, it just makes it more urgent that we do what you've taught us we need to do. The urgency is real because I think also our institutions feel so fragile right, right now. So the grievances that young people have, and they're on the internet searching for answers to their problems, um, you know, we're at a time where we don't trust our institutions, we don't trust our schools, we don't trust scientists and journalists and politicians and police officers, and those that we usually would turn to for guidance and for the supports that we need to get through such a troubling time. And so as we become increasingly sort of polarized and as we become frustrated with the state of the world, that's also going to be underlining all of the other mental health challenges that we were just outlining. And so you have a kind of psychological component to this, and then you have this sociological component to it as well. And I think that for us is why we do need to really build those systems to prop up those institutions to make sure that they are there and they're functioning, particularly for our young people, because they really need them right now. I think so, too. We've got to do something to close this gap or it's going to get worse. That's something that's being worked on right now, but I don't think this one's over. I think we're going to see another one coming, and it's just going to put more and more pressure on our school kids. I think the work that you guys have done has just been prophetic and could not be more timely. Look at what we're facing now. Highest levels since records have been kept. We are at high risk. So we've got to dig in and figure this out. This is very high on my priority list. I visited Capitol Hill recently and talked to members on both sides of the aisle in the House and the Senate. They know that it's high on my priority list, and they're listening, and I'm hoping soon we might jointly go talk to some of these people and see if we can get something done. Is there a state, is there a 
school system, a region that you think does a better job that is kind of a leader in getting some of this together? I know Colorado has some reporting systems and all. Is there somebody that you think approximates leading in the direction that needs to be done? Yeah, Colorado has some really good systems in place. Um, The organization Sandy Hook Promise has an anonymous reporting app that about 2 million students use. And when they put in a concern, it goes to an actual crisis center that, and it's responded to within a minute by a crisis counselor who tries to sort of figure out what that student needs at the moment. And I think that's the type of model we really need at the national level. And the hopeful thing is, I think, when we've studied averted shootings or kids who are on this pathway and change their mind, sometimes the problem can feel so massive at the policy level, but it really comes down to a human connection, right? It's someone connecting with them, like you were describing, someone putting their hand around their shoulder, somebody giving them a little bit of hope to get them through that moment and to get them the resources that they need. So in some ways, that is incredibly hopeful because that is something that we can all be doing for each other every day. Well, it's good that there are some examples out there. And we now have the 988 Suicide and Crisis Lifeline. It's new and it's not flawless at this point because people are being trained, but it is up and it is running. It's the 988 Suicide and Crisis Lifeline. It's got over 200 crisis centers that are open 24 hours a day. People sometimes can't remember the crisis prevention lifeline number, but they can remember 988. So that's out there and it's getting more and more support and more and more activity all the time. I've been working with them on that and messaging on that. So we do have attention. People are paying attention to this on Capitol Hill. I hope you guys will continue to dialogue with me about this, and hopefully we can go up there and talk to these folks and see if we can get them to lean into it. Absolutely. Yes. All right. Well, guys, thank you so much for talking about this. And I hope parents and grandparents, whoever are listening to this, and I always really encourage everyone to go talk to their schools, talk to the school systems, go to their school board meetings, and don't go in hysterical like your hair's on fire, yelling and screaming, what are you doing, what are you doing? But ask the questions and find out how you can help. Recognize that nobody wants this to happen, and all the teachers, all the administrators, everybody wants the same thing. Everybody's looking for answers. Get them to listen to this conversation that we've had here and see if they can open a dialogue, but do it cooperatively, not in an accusatory way, not in a hysterical way, but in a cooperative way. See if we can get people to lean into this some. You guys will continue our dialogue and see if we can keep this moving, but God bless you for the work you're doing. It's amazing. I know how tedious it's been, but you're doing a great job, so thank you for that. Thank you very much. Yes, thank Thank you. you. All right, we'll talk soon. Thanks again. 